You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Okay. Revelation 14. I've broken up today's message in three parts. We're going to move through Revelation 14 and pause every third to cover a few themes throughout it. And there's a few things I'll get into today where if you've been with 1208 long enough, you'll be like, ah, he's talking about that again. But some of you are also going to be like, what on earth are you talking about? I've never heard this before. There's also some very fundamental things that a lot of Christians tend to believe but never show a lot of biblical evidence for. That I might poke at a little bit. So tonight should be fun, I guess. So let's go ahead and hop in Revelation 14, starting with verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is the divine council scene. If you've been with us long enough, you've heard about the divine council before. It's this idea that God has this heavenly council where, yes, He's the one and only God, but there are other spiritual beings, some he's distributed power to, known as the little G-gods in Psalm 82. Also, uh, angels of various kinds, watchers, messengers, the list goes on. Anyways, if you are a spiritual being that God has made, you therefore serve on the divine council. So he might say, for example, I've decided to end King Ahab. An angel might say, here's the way in which you could do it. That actually happens in the Bible. That's an example of how the divine council works. Different things happening in this divine council, though. I don't know if you noticed, but with the divine council at Mount Zion this time, some of the beings don't seem to be there, but they seem to be replaced by Christians. The 144,000 we came across in Revelation 7. And the 144,000 of Revelation 7 were people who were following Jesus, either uh, Israelites who converted to follow Jesus or Christians who who started Gentiles who decided we're going to follow Jesus. It's kind of unclear as to who it is. But in some way, 144,000 Christians are pictured now in the divine council, just as these angels and spiritual beings with power and authority were once there. Now they're replaced by these Christians. And these Christians are noted as being quite pure in all different kinds of ways. They, um, it's here that they're uh, singing a new worship song that only they know. 
It's here that uh, it says they follow Jesus wherever he goes. So they're, they're really good disciples. It's not just like I might follow him or I'm struggling today to follow Jesus. They're actually passionately, God, where are you going to go? I'm right behind you. They don't lie. They're blameless. And then a very confusing comment is that they're virgins and have not defiled themselves with women. What on earth is going on right there, right? <laughs> Three possibilities for you. Number one. They might be getting ready for holy war. Well, let me say this. They are getting ready for holy war. At the end of Revelation, though you don't actually see Christians and Jesus doing violence per se in the way that you think of it, the Bible writers knew about this holy war at the end times in which God would rise against all of the false spiritual beings, against Satan, and once and for all, he would do away with them. And so with holy war coming and now the Christians moving into the divine council, they're going to be a part of God's heavenly army. And as they're getting ready for holy war, if you look throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that you did for holy war was you abstained from sex. And so it's possible that they're called virgins for the reason that they are doing that. It's also possible that they're just free from idols. Okay, Uh, you see all throughout the Bible that sexual language is used as uh, infidelity against God, that you might go and commit uh, adultery against him with some other kind of false God or idol or things like that. But then thirdly, the possibility back in Noah's time, there were angels that fell. They were called sons of God. And they decided to procreate with human women and gave birth to the giants, which is where Goliath eventually comes from. Okay, if you follow the train of thought all throughout the Old Testament, it's all there. We don't have time to get into it right now, uh, but I can give you a chapter I wrote kind of explaining through that. Anyways, it could be that uh, John in Revelation is saying like these holy ones, this divine council, these Christians are getting it right. They haven't defiled themselves with women like the the fallen angels who are no longer in the divine council. These are the good ones. They're doing it right. They're in the divine council and they're not falling to lust or to blame or to sin or to anything like that. I don't know about you, but that's always like a huge encouragement to me. I feel like every day struggling with something, you know, as as a Methodist. John Wesley told us, like, I really feel like there's a point that you could get to where you no longer sinned intentionally, where your life would be so sanctified, you're so much like Jesus, that you no longer sinned intentionally. And I look at John, I'm like, I I think I believe you, but every day, it just seems like I'm not there. (laughs) Like, not even close. Uh, One of my friends said on Facebook this week, when he gets those Facebook memories, he's like, I wasn't sure about sanctification, but I read the stuff that I used to post many years ago, and now I'm like, I am growing. (laughs) And that's kind of what I feel like. Like every day there's a struggle with something, whether it's yelling at my kids or or fighting with my wife or or something else. Like there's just these moments where it's like, man, I could have done that better today. But the picture painted of Christians in the divine council is we've been so adapted to be like Jesus that we're blameless, that we don't lie that we don't fall to baser instincts, to sexual instincts, anything like that. We have arrived to be what God has called us to be. So there's a beautiful picture painted here in Revelation 14. Now, on a side note, keep this in mind as we keep moving through Revelation 14. These 144,000 are referred to as first fruits, which may imply like this is God's tithe, is the completeness. 
I think it implies, though, that these are just the first of more to come. It's an encouraging word to the Christians. They're not alone. God will save more. And I think we see that as we keep reading. So part two, let's move on. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. All right, so part two of Revelation 14. It's here that we see somehow the gospel continues. This surprises me. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, a lot of times when we look at Revelation, we're just like, ah, oh, it's just so brutal. Ah, oh, it's just so much war and violence and, and difficulty. I think as if you've been paying attention as we've been going through it, you see that it's mostly war and violence on Christians. They're just kind of accepting this difficulty on themselves, just as Jesus accepted the difficulty on himself on the cross. But here we are in Revelation 16. We're, ha- we're past halfway through the book. We've been through plague after plague after plague after plague 14 times over. We've seen people hardening their hearts against God 14 times over. People are following Satan unashamedly. People are giving their allegiance to the beast and to Rome and to the nations and therefore the false gods. We see God's own children being killed time and time again. And somehow, after all of that, 16 chapter, sorry, 14 chapters into Revelation, God sends out angels to proclaim an eternal gospel. That the good news is still going on. That you too can still be saved. Despite all of this hardening, despite all of this murder, you too can still be saved. Just repent and turn to God. Anyone who looks at Revelation is like, there's just no grace here. You're missing this fact. An eternal gospel, after all this pain, after all this difficulty, proclaimed all the way to the very end. So long as you are breathing, so long as there is time, the gospel is yours to come to Jesus. And it might be the last breath, like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, who's like... Forgive me. (laughs) The only person in the entire Bible 
who we like get to see Jesus say like, yeah, you got into heaven was a guy who accepted him with like his last few hours. That's how eternal the gospel is, how how long and patient God will wait for people to repent and turn to him. It's a beautiful word right here. Something we need to open to our eyes about. Because it's, it's interesting. Revelation is finally going to be about the day of God's wrath. And yet, even amidst that wrath, there's this, this ultimate eternal gospel proclaimed to the world. And one thing that I'll note, and I don't even really like noting this, but I'll note it anyways. The angels are willing to talk about hell. <laughs> Uh, I, you, you've probably even heard me preach against like trying to reach people by talking about hell. Like I get it. I've seen it abused before where people are using scare tactics to get people to become Christians. That doesn't usually make the greatest disciples because once the scare wears off, you just kind of leave Christianity. So like it doesn't always work right. But man, we just preached through Matthew and I could not believe how much Jesus talked about hell. <laughs> And now these angels are sent out to do the same thing. So it does become, I think, reckless on our behalf to not be willing to to put out the warning and recognize like, hey, there actually is something real and tangible, something bad that will happen if you don't come to Jesus. And God doesn't want that to happen. So he's inviting you with the eternal gospel to come to him now. As far as what hell is, I actually think it's not exactly the way we usually preach it. But we are not at that point of revelation. So if you want to learn about what I think hell is, you got to keep coming. Uh, and after enough weeks, we'll, we'll finally dive into that. Okay, let's get to the final part of revelation here. <clears throat> and I want you to pay close attention because there may be a moment to talk about this. So. Final part of Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man and a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So it's like 100 miles or more. All right, not a pleasant picture, right? (laughs) Suddenly we have reaping coming. A first group is reaped and then a second group is taken as grapes and crushed in a winepress until... The grape juice flows out, which John says, like, I'm using a metaphor. This is their life, their blood flowing out. So go ahead and just take three quick minutes at your table or combine your tables, whatever. Here's the question you're asking. Who is reaped? Who is crushed? 
Because Isaiah talks about the day in which Jesus, or sorry, when the Messiah or God will come along and he'll pour out his wrath by crushing the grapes. But Matthew said that uh, um, the world would be taken first as weeds and then the Christians would be taken next. So what does he have in mind? Who's being reaped? Who's being crushed? Is it one? Is it both? What's happening? So go ahead at your tables. Just two, three minutes. See if you can come to a conclusion amongst yourselves. And many of you may have to combine yourselves. <laughs> if you think that the Christians are reaped and then the um, world is kind of crushed, technically, thematically, it's appropriate. Because eventually at the end of Revelation... The Christians will be reaped and the world will be crushed. Now, if you're the other way and you think that the world will be reaped and that's like them being taken out and then the Christians will be crushed. Well, you can go that route, too, because so far we've seen a lot of martyrdom, like thematically appropriate. For me, I fall into not just a minority view, but like a super minority view. I just, when I read this, it just didn't hit me right. And I'll, I'll be honest, part of the reason it doesn't hit me right is because I have a pacifistic understanding of Jesus. I see him look at his disciples with spiritual power and he tells them you can't use that for violent means. I see him look at his disciples with physical power and he disarms Peter from his sword. And not only that, he tells the disciples, like, the reason you even had a sword in the first place was because I told you, you followed me this whole time. Now I want you to do the opposite of what I said. Disobey me and go get a sword. So, like, when I read through the Bible, it constantly leads me back to Jesus telling me, vengeance is only God's. You as a human being, as a Christian, you can accept violence onto yourself, but you are never to put violence on another person. That's what I see told to me time and time again. So it's hard for me because we've seen a lamb bloodied with his own blood who has been telling Christians all the way through Revelation, lie your lives down, be willing to die for the cause because this is what will finally lead people to repentance is martyrdom. John comes to that over and over again. It's hard for me to see Jesus suddenly switch after 14 chapters of ingraining that in our heads to suddenly like, hey, look at me. I'm squashing all the guts out of people and the blood flows for 100 miles as high as your chin. You know, like, it's just like, okay, that changed really quickly. <laughs> the vision of the lamb has suddenly shifted very hard. So it's not that it couldn't be that because the themes work out. It just, the imagery feels like John just suddenly switched. And so I kept looking around, trying to find someone to propose something that made more sense to me. And N.T. Wright and a little bit of Greg Boyd together give, I think, a much better idea, where basically they're both Christians. So the first part is if you're a Christian already, Jesus comes and he reaps, he takes you home with him. Now, that sounds like the rapture to a lot of us. I actually don't really believe in the rapture. I don't think you see it in the Bible. Here's what you do see that gets mistaken for the rapture. When Jesus at the end finally is on his way to the earth for that final holy war with all of his angels and with all of the saints, as he's coming down on the cloud, 
Paul's intent, I think, is not that we just go up to heaven, but that we, if we are still on the earth and Christian at that time, we are taken into the place where he is on his way down. So you're just kind of like, you leave here to join him on his way. You're the welcoming party, if you will. That's what I think the Bible's talking about when it's talking about a rapture. Jesus is on his way. Ah, I'm still alive, Jesus. Don't, you know. And, and so, okay, come join me on my way down. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says. That's the resurrection. If you have not died by the time Jesus comes back, you join him in the clouds on the way down. Along with all the Christians who have already entered into um, this resurrection life on their way down. Okay, so that's what I do at the rapture. So for me, this is Jesus either like gathering people on his way down because the next like three chapters are pretty much the world ending. So it could be that. But at the same time, it could just be Jesus reaps the earth. He sees that the fullness of Christians are here. So he takes all the Christians to his side. But then what about uh, what about the wine press? I would say we're back to martyrdom again. Again, it's by our own blood that Jesus wins all throughout Revelation because it was by his own blood that he wins. That's the secret key to Revelation. So here's a few reasons why it would be that way. First off, if you note, the wine press was outside of the city. That's an intentional illusion, I believe. Jesus was killed outside of the city. The first martyr, Stephen, was killed outside of the city. So John's saying, like, these are martyrs. They all are taken outside of the city and killed. They're not accepted by their own, but they're sent out, sent outside. Secondly, if you notice, the angel that collects all the grapes is the martyr angel. It said that it came out of the altar. What's inside the altar? It's all the martyrs. And it said this angel had power over the fire. What's the fire? Well, that's the, the prayers of these martyrs who said, God, when will you avenge us? The angel takes that uh, fire and throws it on the earth for judgment. So that seems to be, to me, like the martyr angel representing grabbing the martyrs. On top of that, um, God told, when they said, God, when are you going to avenge our deaths, all of us martyrs? God responded to them and said, you have to wait for the fullness of the martyrs to come in. We're not going to read it due to time, but Revelation 6, 9 through 11, he told, tells them at the end, rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. So he tells the martyrs, I'm not ready. The fullness of the martyrs hasn't come in. I, I'm not, perhaps I could paraphrase, paraphrase and say, I'm not quite angry enough <laughs> to, to not give enough patience for them. Uh, there's still more time I'm allotting to them. On top of that, uh, martyr blood and drinking blood pair up in Revelation. You see... Uh, um, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve in Revelation 16. And then the woman Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So blood and martyrdom go together throughout Revelation. And then finally in Revelation 19, when the holy war finally happens, the wine press is pictured there with Jesus squashing it. And it's creating the fury of the wrath of God. The fury of the wrath of God. I think this picture that's being painted in the Holy War is like the time has come. Here's Jesus showing God how much blood there is. The fullness of the cup of, of this blood of the martyrs that will be poured out on the earth. Jesus is crushing it saying, look, 
flowing for hundreds of miles. It's, it's as high as a horse's bridle. Like, now is the time. So Revelation 19, I'll read that to you. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, which means if I'm right, then Jesus is dipping his, his clothes in the martyr's blood. That's the reason for the holy war. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The word of God John uses in the gospel of John to talk about how um, Jesus was there at creation. He can speak things into existence. So here in the holy war, he's got a sword in his mouth. He's speaking things out of existence. You don't actually see him slice anyone. His words are all he needs. Uh, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, while following him on white horses. So again, the purity of the saints and the angels who haven't fallen altogether. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So for me, I would go with symbolism that the blood of the martyrs, it's not that Jesus enjoys seeing Christians killed. It's quite the opposite. Jesus is getting God's attention. Look at the fullness of the wrath that has come, the blood that they have shed. Are you ready for the day to come now? Here we are in Revelation 14 with an eternal gospel. And, you know, some of you are going to interpret it uh, with the world on one side, Christians on the other, or Christians on one side and the world on the other. Thematically, it works fine. It really does. The same themes are told throughout the Bible. What's different for me is I'm just trying to say this isn't the kind of Jesus that John has pictured so far. And I want to see him for who he is. And if the translation that Wright and Boyd offer is correct then that helps me a lot. You know, I remember this past Halloween, I was uh, getting ready to take my kids trick-or-treating and someone invited me to their church. I was like, oh, I was going to take the kids around to, you know, trick-or-treat. And kind of like the response is, oh, man, the neighborhood's just wicked around here. You know that? I'm like, this is the one time of year where it's appropriate to knock on my neighbor's house and introduce myself. Like, I'm thinking, like, this is a great time for me to be missional maybe build some relationships, introduce my children, maybe meet some people around the community. Uh, And I feel like the way that you picture Jesus in this parable does have an effect on you. And not that he pictures him this way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just using it as a metaphor. If Jesus, in your mind, is ready to crush the world and has no problem about it but wants to see everything burn... Well, then your neighborhood's wicked and who cares about them? Let's just go to church. But if the Jesus of your mind is like crying, walking around in the blood drenched clothes of God's children. That flows for miles. Look at this tragedy. Well, that changes it. It reminds us of the eternal gospel that needs to be preached, that those who are doing the martyrdom might even get saved. An extreme grace that far. And I think what you do with the picture of Jesus in the wine press, it's just little symbols like that that like minusculely change things in, in the way that you think. One sees Jesus as squashing their wicked neighbors. The other sees an eternal gospel proclaimed. Uh, One sees God smiling as he revels in his enemy's blood. 
while one sees God holding out patiently for repentance. One sees a heartless God full of vengeance. I will kill them all. While the other sees a heart filled God of vengeance saying, why do they keep killing my babies? And I think how you internalize that image will make a difference with your missional impact. The themes of Revelation are ultimately the same. What you do with the imagery is going to affect how you live. It's the same thing with my journey into trying to follow Jesus towards what the pacifistic way he did it. I realized if I embody this idea on a regular basis of someone might stab me on the street and I'm going to turn around and do this cool ninja move, like when the moment happens, I'm going to embody whatever I've prepared myself for. But if I've practiced, man, how do I lay my life down and hope that they repent and follow Jesus, even if it costs my life? When that moment comes, I'm probably going to still suck at actually pulling it off, but (laughs) I might be willing to say, hey, Jesus loves you. Please don't kill me, but (laughs) come to Jesus right now. I want you to know his love. You embody what you believe. If your image is God reveling in death, then you're missing the God hurting about his children and wanting more children at the same time. There's a classic song that Kevin and Janae love to sing about uh, God making new wine out of us. (laughs) Until I revealed to them that that new wine is our death. But uh, we're not going to sing that next. I don't know why I even brought it up. I just thought it was funny. Um, What we are going to do, though, is worship and take some communion. And I think communion is appropriate tonight because it's the original blood shed for us. It's a reminder that, hey, uh, the band can come up. It's a reminder that, hey, uh, Jesus was willing to go the distance to lay his life down to the point that while he's dying on a cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so you as Christians need to be willing to get to the point of saying, as the person is approaching you behind, God, how do I love this person even now? Olivia is going to be distributing communion just because I know there's been a lot of sickness going around. So we just thought this would be helpful. Um, but uh, as we partake in this, allow the Holy Spirit to convict and work in you. And uh, let's just worship. So take out whatever posture you like while we worship. Would you please begin by standing? I don't know if we have a prayer team available tonight. A lot of people are gone. But if, oh, Kathy, Kathy's good. If you need prayer for anything, head to the back corner.